Hello, everybody, and welcome to an, another exciting episode of the Adventures of DevOps podcast. I am your host, Jonathan Mahal, and here in my virtual studio with me is Jillian. Hello. Hi, Jillian. Hi. And joining us today, our special guest is Mirko Herring. Welcome, Mirko. Thanks for having me. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, maybe how you know anything about DevOps? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm the global DevOps lead for Accenture um, for the last 13 years or so have been working in this space, really helping complex organizations try to make the best use out of DevOps. So I work a lot with um, what I call heritage applications, like the mainframe, all Java applications, Salesforce, Oracle, you name it. Basically in an environment where there's lots of lots of interesting technologies to solve. So I think maybe a good place to start then would be to hear your description or definition, if you will, of what DevOps is? Because this is, it's a fuzzy word. Everybody means something different by it. When you talk about DevOps, uh, what does it mean to you? Yes, yeah, so for me, DevOps is really uh, an umbrella term. And what I mean by that is, is I have a lot of different practices that fit within this. And they're all for the purpose of building IT solutions in a better way, faster, more secure, um, and ultimately Make it make it easier for developers to solve the the business problems. I'm not I'm not too fast with these specific buzzwords to be honest. Like you know, yeah. like every every couple of months you get a new DevSecOps, MLOps, yeah. AIOps, SRE, platform engineering, and to me it's all just you know they're, they're kind of facets on a prism of what we're trying to do. But at the end of the day, we're all here to improve the the overall way that we develop develop solutions. Exactly right. I like that way of thinking about it. It's more about um, thinking of the process rather than you know, tightly defining the thing itself. Yeah, and I was just like, the last couple of um, keynotes I did at DevOps days, like, there's different titles, but it's basically DevOps is dead, long live DevOps. Like, kind of <laughs> making accepted this argument. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, we actually had an interview on this show a few months ago, I think, um, with uh, somebody, I, I don't know if they're credited for creating the DevOps is dead uh, meme. But they certainly per- perpetrated it, and, and they were kind of feeling sorry for it. Like, like it, people took it entirely the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, but I like that. DevOps is dead. Long live DevOps. There we go. So, um, I don't know if, if you want to talk about a few stories, maybe the uh, specific client stories that you could tell about, or or, or a, a technical challenge um, that that you face. How, how do you like to, to address this uh, this topic? Yeah. So, so let me let me start with the way that I think about it, um, mm-hmm. because it's I don't know whether it's unique, but it's certainly the the thing that I've learned over time. And, and I've come through, you know, in certain years you come through a couple of waves of this. Right? Um, I was a, an engineer initially, and um, I certainly thought that just having a better technical solution or better tools or whatever would give you the answer. And I've matured out of that, understanding now that it's a lot more about you know bringing you know the the capabilities, so the you know the the practice like continuous delivery or continuous integration, together with the organization. So you can think about the kind of organizational structure of you know having all these kind of siloed teams to more full stack teams, and then bringing that together with the architecture of your of your of your technology. Because from my experience, architecture is this kind of dirty secret. If you have a big monolithic mainframe, um, then there's only so much you can do with DevOps, and so you have to mm-hmm. kind of 
you have to basically address all three dimensions. You need to uplift your capabilities. You need to arrange your organization the way that is most optimized. And then you need to evolve the architecture to something that you can ideally support with that. Mm-hmm. Are you saying the engineers should maybe talk to each other? <laughs> It'll be a good start. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm so, a big fan of full-stack teams instead of this idea of these unicorn full-stack engineers. Right? So I think you need to have the capabilities in your team, but I don't necessarily believe that every engineer is going to be the superstar. Right. I definitely agree with that. There's just too many things for anybody to be a superstar in anything anymore, I think. But, and, and I think full-stack engineers works in your startup in a garage and there's like five of you because you have no choice. Right? But if you get to big organizations, there's you know thousands and thousands of developers and you can just, like, that's just never going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so you made an interesting point about the architecture, the technical architecture is important for DevOps. Are there architectures that you think are fundamentally incompatible with the DevOps approach? And if so, why? See, I think you can use DevOps ideas for everything. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's an, there's a concept that I like to use with, with my clients. It's called transaction cost. Um, it comes from, from Reinitzen and from product management and so forth. But the idea is that if you if you build a solution, then for that to, to go live, to become productive, there's a transaction cost. And the transaction cost describes you know, how quickly you can get something done. If you have a big, big mainframe um, or a big package software, then the transaction cost is high. Because you need to get all these changes together into one bundle. You need to kind of compile it or build it. You need to deploy it. And you might have to stop pretty much the whole, the whole organization to do that deployment. That's a massive mm-hmm. transaction cost. If you have a microservice and you, know, you can deploy that at any point in time, and you, and if you have multiple versions live in production, then the transaction cost is you know, not, not zero, but it can get very close to zero. So mm-hmm. the goal of all we're doing in, in DevOps is to reduce the transaction cost. Now, the transaction cost on a microservice might be from five minutes to four minutes. The transaction cost on a big monolithic mainframe might be from you know, three months down to two and a half months. Mm-hmm. Right? And the principles are the same. You're looking for ways of improving the way that you validate um, quality, you know, testing, test automation, code scans, whatever that is, or it's the, the actual deployment mechanism, or it's the, the validation afterwards. Right? So it's, you, you have to kind of look for each technology what is the bottleneck in that end-to-end process, and then improve that. Right? You're looking at a series of constraints, right? You're looking for the one thing that is holding this specific stack back. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's, you know, we have this tool belt, and we need to figure out what the contextual problem is, and then we, it, we use that tool belt to, to address that specific bottleneck. So what are some interesting a... problems you've you know, been tasked with solving or come up with? Yeah, I, I we, can, we can cover, like, let's, let's cover kind of, kind of three different things in there, kind of go down kind of my favorite path of um, craziness, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you take in, uh, something like a, the, the Siebel application, right? It's a, the big package. And one of the problems to solve there was like, if you have multiple teams working on a big monolithic package, is how do, how do you manage code? Because at the end of the day, if you want to be at all independent in your individual teams, you need to find a way to share code. And so one thing that we had to then look at is, and what, what Siebel does, and there's other package software that does it as well, is whenever I check in code, it basically creates a, a bunch of metadata that gets stored. 
you know, at what point did I change this field or this specific data set? And what that means is when you compare code, it's you have only conflict because this kind of metadata always differs. And so the problem that we had to solve is like how do we how do we identify just the actually the code that matters? And so we had to create uh, basically it's a you know a, a comparison tool that ignores all the metadata that doesn't that doesn't carry payload and only looks for the configuration that matters. And then you had to build this into your kind of IDE stack so that you can you know, have the individual developers being able to use this and then still combine afterwards a, a fully working product. Right? And so that's that's really kind of you're dealing with the kind of core architecture of an application that was not built with DevOps ideas in, um, in, in mind. And we had to kind of solve that for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Salesforce was very similar for a long time. And they brought out DX just a, you know, a little while ago to address some of that. So that's one of the things where you just kind of really get to the core architecture of it. And I, I find this fun as an engineer. Um, I'm not sure whether that's the, uh, the most traditional way of looking at it, but I find it fun to just look under the hood and figure out how we can how we can play around with it. That's one type of problem. Then you have to have a problem that is purely organizational, right? So how do we how do we look at large organizations that might have big testing centers or um, very separated practices and reshape them? Yeah, and how do we how do we bring organizations together? And, and really, my answer to that at the at the moment is um, to do value stream mapping, right? to bring all these people together in a room to, to Julian's point, or get them to actually talk to each other, to start understanding, wait a second, like what is your job in here? And how can I actually make your job easier by providing perhaps my content in a slightly different way or with different metadata or in a different format? Um, and really start to just see how, once you bring people together in, a, in an open-minded way and with some you know, visual um, facilitation, that they can actually start addressing kind of organizational problems. Yeah. And then the, the, the third one that I find fascinating is, so how do we make it stick? Because I've been in several organizations, certainly in the earlier iterations, where you go in because you want to do a DevOps transformation. And, you know, the executives are getting really excited about that. And you're going to do this. And then the CIO gets replaced. And they, has a, they have a different interest. And they just stop because no one can explain why we did this. Right? So, you know, show me where the benefit is. And, you know, you, you saw this with Agile as well, where you say, oh, but we have, you know, we have more agile teams. So what? You know, so like what, yeah. <laughs> what exactly? What? Oh, we have continuous delivery. Okay. Like, how does it help? <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so it's like, so, so you kind of see if you want to be successful in an organization, you have to kind of address all these three different problems, right? You have to do the kind of engineering. You need to look at kind of the, the process and the together the, the the human system, and then you also need to address the kind of the executives and the the business case and the value and the like. Why are we investing in this? Well, those are really good examples. I always think it's really important for engineers to uh, learn how to speak a little bit less in tech speak and then learn how to translate that back to, and I suppose we could say like the business case, but what what is the problem that you're trying to solve and how does it relate to that? Just like you were saying, we have agile. You know, how does the person who's not in the in the tech speak know what that means or know why that benefits them or you know, anything of that nature? So it's always really important to bring these concepts back. And, and there's no one walking around kind of giving you the, you know, the, the certificate at the end saying, you're, you're agile, like, you know, you're done here. And, and this is actually, this is actually one of the really fundamental problems, I think. It's what we're doing now is a transformation that has no end. Right. And I think that's really hard for people to get their head around because it's not like, 
there's no end state, right? It's not like as is to be, and we're just going to make our way across this chasm. It's like, like every, every week there's a new technology. Now we need to deal with, you know, how, how do we deal with computer generated code more? And, you know, how do we control that? And how do you, what do you show that? And how do we deal with CIP considerations? And, you know, in, in three or six months time, we have the next thing that we need to start solving for. I think that's one of the reasons that, I mean, that's one of the reasons so-called agile or DevOps transformations fail so often is because they really do never end. And, and that's, it's almost a misnomer to call it a transformation. You, you might think of it as a transformation of mindset. You know, we were in the mindset of things go this way and now we're in the mindset of things are never the same. They're always improving. But you never reach that end goal. You know, there's no finish line, right? You, you're never like, okay, now we're agile. We can stop doing those things now. We can stop being, we can stop improving our DevOps. You know, I had somebody ask me once uh, on an interview, um, few years ago, I think. Um, you know, so Jonathan, if a company, you know, does all the right things, uh, it, you know, it, are they, can they, can they say they're doing DevOps now and then stop improving? I was like, well, you could say you're doing DevOps at the moment, but you know, once you stop improving, then, you know, if you're doing the exact same things a year later, no, you're not, you're not doing DevOps. If you, if you aren't improving your processes every day, every week, you're, you're not doing DevOps or agile the way it's intended to be. Yeah, I, I use this analogy with, with my clients where um, it's kind of the equivalent if you are, you know, a, a slightly overweight, middle-aged, white male, and you go to the doctor and they say, like, you know, you have high blood pressure and you're a bit of, you know, you should really lose some weight. And, you know, what, what I'm looking for is for the doctor to give me this pill that I need to take once or, you know, the, the cabbage diet for three weeks. Right. And what he's going to tell me is, Mr. Herring, like, you need to work out more and you need to eat healthier and you will need to do this for the rest of your life. Right. Huh? And I think that's exactly the same, right? Like the the kind of magic pill of the cabbage diet is the, you know, the the, the SRE uh, playbook and the the latest CD technology, right? That's mm-hmm. not going to solve your problem. It's the using all that stuff to to really become a better organization on an ongoing basis. Exactly. So DevOps is the vegetables of the tech world. I, I kind of like that actually <laughs> as an analogy, just running around being like, you eat your vegetables. Put down that ice cream. Put it Do down. Your Come on, like you know, here's some broccoli. Pretend there's tiny trees and you're a dinosaur. Go nuts. DevOps <laughs> is good for you. Exactly. <laughs> I, I can tell you that my six-year-old actually puts on the pizza spinach and broccoli, which I find Whoa. terribly weird. <laughs> but if it gets if it gets them to eat it, why not? Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like it's not the pepperoni. It's like spinach and broccoli on a pizza. Hmm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> questions um and one of them is probably going to be a stumper but i hope you have an answer because i've been looking for one for a while uh, but first you, you talked about bottlenecks how do you how do you identify bottlenecks when you're working with an, a, a company um yeah what, what's the process you use to identify the bottlenecks to improve yeah and look i as i said like i think my my, my magic tool is the value stream mapping it's just what i found the the most useful thing which is you you're really kind of mapping out the it process from idea to production and, you know, the, the specific steps. And then bottlenecks for me have a couple of different flavors because bottlenecks can be, they can be things that take a long time, you know, like standing up an environment, getting access to an environment, getting test data, whatever, whatever that is. So it's a kind of a duration bottleneck. I think the, the second type is a quality bottleneck, 
where you know we find too many defects, we um, we the environments are too unstable, the deployments are not um, reliable enough. Like, do you have a quality um, bottleneck? And then the third one is, is backflow, where you you have basically things that you sort of solve, but they're coming back, and that might be just clarifications, it might be might be incidents, um, and so it's those kind of different bottlenecks that you can identify. And usually, I mean, if I show you the value stream next I've done, it's kind of imagine you have kind of green post-it notes for processes and red post-it notes for, for problems. Mm-hmm. They usually have nearly as many red post-it notes as green post-it notes. Right? So it's a target-rich environment usually in big organizations. And then it becomes, you know, which ones A, can be addressed because they're within our remit and, you know, it's not like, you know, I need the SEO to make changes or we need to change the budgeting process or, or those kind of things and still have an impact. So you kind of do like, you know, impact versus how difficult it is on a, you know, on a two-dimensional graph. And then you figure out which ones you can actually address with the, with the team that you have. How do you know if you've addressed a bottleneck? How do you know if you're making progress? And, and let, me, let me paint the picture a little bit further because sometimes it's obvious, you know. Deploys were taking six weeks. Now they're down to a day. That's progress, right? That's pretty obvious. But sometimes you have a, a, a process change that maybe has a long lead time or it, it requires people to learn something new and there's, there's a learning curve to it. So you know, maybe an example is um, we're going to throw away Jira and start using stickies or something like that. And there's a lot of pushback because, oh, this feels harder or there's more work to be, you know, I don't like writing or you know, what, whatever the, imagine a scenario where some, you're getting pushback. How do you know if that pushback is legitimate and that the new process is worse versus, uh, you know, you know, because the short-term pain, you know, uh, the, the pushback usually comes from some short-term pain. Is that yeah. short-term pain uh, endemic of something bigger or do you need to push through that short-term pain with the faith that something better is coming through? How do, how do you make that call? Yeah, and, and, and this is where you would like to get a, a magic answer. Which I won't of be course, able to yes. Everyone wants this answer. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I think there's... See, I describe a lot of this as... Uh, I'm a man of terrible analogies, but I, I describe this as kind of breathing in and breathing out because I think there's these, these things that you just try and experiment with. And you're going to allow this to go for a while while you're kind of breathing in. Um, and you just let it run for a little bit. But if after three months or six months or whatever you agree as a period, it's not, if, if it's the same as before, all right, then let's stick with it. Like there's no mm-hmm. reason to move back. Um, if it's worse, still after that period of time, then we need to try something different. It might be going yeah. back or might be, you know, yet a third option. But if it's better, then we now agree that this is now our new standard. And mm-hmm. that, that applies for, for process changes that you described, but it also applies for, hey, like we really hate, uh, I mean, Git, we want to go back to uh, Bitbucket or whatever, right? Sure, yeah. Uh, okay, be my guest. I, I'm, let, I'm letting this team go for a little bit. But if they can't justify after three months why this thing is better or not, but it has extra cost for us because, you know, the different licensing or, or whatever else, sure. then you have to come back to the fold. So a lot of this is, you know, you can describe it as a pendulum swinging, you can buy spending it as breathing in and breathing out. But I think mm-hmm. you just have to have some of that because not everything is linear in, in transformation. Right, right. Yeah, that's good insight. I, I like the way you put a time cap on it too. You said six months, and, and sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes you might just need a, a few weeks. Um, you know, but but yeah, I, I think putting a you know, say let, let, I, I like the phrase "let's try an experiment" 
when you get yeah. pushed back. Well, let, let, let's try it for two weeks. Let's try it for a month, and then we'll come back and reevaluate. That, that would be, and I, I stay with my analogy of the of the guy who's trying to get fit. Right? That's like doing your first workout. The next morning, you wake up and you are aching. And you're like, "Come on, do that yeah. again." It's like, right. no, 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 you have to stack for a little bit. <laughs> we'll see that it's actually I, getting better. Excellent analogy. Yeah, yeah. I I hate running. I hate work. <laughs> I mean, literally, I hate running. <laughs> I don't mind some workouts, but I hate running. But yeah, you know, if if, if I were to judge my success based on the morning after, uh, especially the first week, I would I would just I would never do exercise. <laughs> it is like that, and, and and a lot of this stuff. I mean, there's no if there would be, and this is now that I'm a parent. You know, it's true for parenting, right? If there would be a right answer, everyone would tell you the right answer. Given that there's everyone, there's like 50 different ways that people tell you how to do it. That means there is no one answer. Which means you need to find the one that works with your child or with your team. Yeah, kids are the ultimate example of a science experiment. They really are. <laughs> and yeah, I also found like, when working with a big group of people, that's often a good way to get some kind of buy-in. Is you know, don't let anybody to be too, including yourself, be too kind of emotionally invested in um, like what you think the outcome is going to be, and said kind of frame everything as like, all right, this is sort of the hypothesis that we're testing. And we think, I, use, I think using a time frame is a really great example. You know, we're going to test this out using this time frame. And this is the outcome that we're hoping to get to say if this was, you know, like if this was successful or not. And maybe have some other kind of metrics in terms of, uh, you know, like what's successful and what's not. And I think we can get people on board with something like that pretty quickly. And I'm a huge fan of, of getting metrics. It's just some of this stuff is, it's hard, like, you know, what feels easier, right? I mean, how do you, how do you put a metric around this? Um, but other things are very metrics driven and, you know, the engineering processes are pretty aligned to that. You can, you know, you can measure deployment times, you can measure defect rates, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can measure. Um, but for some of the stuff, you just need to stick with it. And then, you know, after a while, it's just, hey guys, like, what do you think? Is it now more painful to go back? Is it, you know, is it worth sticking where we are? So you said you concentrate on kind of a, it sounds to me like sort of an enterprise software, maybe stack, you know, like Salesforce and, um, I don't remember what were the other ones that you mentioned, but have you found any kind of patterns or just anything you know interesting you found specifically with working with these types of software? Because I know I don't work with any of those, so I'm just interested <laughs> in your experience. That's um, more on like startup side of things rather than the enterprise, and it's all a bit like what's happening over there. Yeah, what I find amazing, and this is this is again one of those things that um, I've only only come to realize over the last couple of years. It's I find this, by the way, amazing how. You know, I completely believe that I need to disagree with myself once in a while. Like, you know, like I, I very much disagree with myself from five years ago. I'm probably going to disagree with my today in, in a year's time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I used to think that there's technology-specific solutions and that these technologies are very specific. And now I'm at the point of like, actually, in the, in the overall scheme of things, when you look at the build process, the deployment process, the testing process, et cetera, they are pretty similar. Like the individual components underneath are different. Um, but there's an overarching process that we can align. And I think that's becoming a lot more important, certainly in larger organizations, than the optimization of the individual team. I, I take a really simple example um, from my early days of Agile, where lots of organizations say the teams can choose their own tools. Brilliant idea, up to the point that you realize that now these people can't even speak to each other anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, your, your geo dependencies against the Azure DevOps against the rally, against the whatever, like it just doesn't work. And we we sometimes forget that this is an overall system. And that means we need to 
really optimize the overall system rather than give it to components. And that means we need to have similar language. We need to make sure that our mainframe colleagues can speak to the same people as our, you know, Google data lake people. And if we don't facilitate that, then we can't expect the organization to work well. So for me, that is one of those things that I've spent a lot of time with now to try to align these, these worlds and get people to understand that the overall process of you still build an application. Yes, it's completely different for your, your Salesforce application to a, a Java custom build, but you're still building it somehow. It might just be that, you know, it's abstracted away from you and you're still deploying it and you're still dealing with an environment. Even if it's a, even if it's a SaaS product, you, there's still an environment somewhere. There's still a data consistency somewhere that you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really getting those kind of commonality um, and highlighting that over the, the difference that I spend a lot of my, my energy on and that I think is helping organizations to improve the whole thing and not just the, you know, have the runaway cool team and then the, you know, the older guys <laughs> falling behind. It's really easy, isn't it, for techs, uh, whether it's uh, SREs or developers or whatever, anybody in the tech field to, to get caught up with the shiny new tools and, and, and fall in love with their tooling. But from a business standpoint, that's almost irrelevant. It's not, it's not completely irrelevant. I mean, it's, it's kind of like if you, let, let's say you own a fleet of rental cars uh, and you hire some mechanics to work on those cars, they may care about the exact fuel injectors you use and the exact, you know, brake pads and, you know, whatever, or maybe they want the new greatest, uh, you know, regenerative braking technology, whatever, the, whatever they might get excited about. They can care about that. And that's not unimportant. But at the level of managing a fleet of vehicles, you don't care what kind of brakes are on those vehicles, as long as they can stop when they're supposed to. <laughs> Yeah, and and you want them all to be the same because you don't want to have to keep stock of eight hundred different types of brakes. <laughs> yeah, and, and look at look at organizations, right? So, uh, like big organizations, when you look at the tools they use to run their IT, it is as complex as the business applications they run, right? Mm-hmm. Because they have dozens and dozens of tools, right? Yeah. And yeah, arguably, I'm with you, right? I'm, there are some tools that are better than others, but I've done DevOps automation with Control M, right? I mean, yeah. that that kind of worked. Mm-hmm. And all these people that are spending months trying to decide whether they go with tool X or tool Y, I think they're really missing the point. Definitely, yeah. I wonder how much of that is going to kind of start to go away a little bit with the, you know, with just the huge advents that we're seeing in AI and in these kind of, um, I'm not exactly sure what they're called, these sort of transformative tools where you're like, yeah, you have Python, but then you get like this sort of, schema that then can be translated into any of the other languages, right? Like the, um, like a lot of the web APIs have this. Or now, you know, for example, I've been getting back into C++ lately because I have, you know, the GitHub Copilot and the AI tools in my IDE, and they can very easily auto-complete for me. And so I care less about the fact that I'm like, oh, you know, I have to remember all these things with C++, but I don't really feel like remembering because the IDE remembers it for me. And so I wonder how much this is going to kind of influence you know, maybe some of these teams that are on one side of the fence or the other, where they're very, very constrained with their tool choice, being very, very open. And if it's going to make the people who are very, you know, constrained kind of maybe move towards the, well, maybe we can be more open with our tool choice because it just, just doesn't matter as much anymore. I, have I, you seen I'm, anything I, mean, I, I still have like this, this inherent hope, um, it never really materialized, but that we, we get to a point that we get these tools to work together. Right, the kind of the ESB for um, for for tech tools, like we just we just never got there. 
Um, and it's kind of frustrating because each tool ended up becoming its own walled garden. And, and you know, I'm the one who orchestrates everything, but don't you dare try to orchestrate me. Uh, and that's just like, I think a, an anti-pattern. You see, you can see this kind of, again, this pendulum swing, right? You have all these new tools coming up and then they all consolidate because, you know, one vendor bubbles up a whole bunch of them to build this, you know, end-to-end solution. And it's, I find this fascinating when you go to the individual kind of tooling conferences, um, you can totally see that that pattern, right? I, I kind of wonder if, I mean, on, on, in some ways we've standardized. I mean, like Docker is a pretty universal uh, uh, abstraction layer that virtually everything uses. Not, not literally everything. I mean, if you're using Heroku or something, you know, maybe you're not always using Docker. Um, but almost almost all the big tools can use Docker. So there's there's one layer of abstraction that's pretty common. Uh, Terraform doesn't really give... It, it sort of gives you a layer of abstraction across, on top of everything. But it's not really abstraction. It's just a common like file syntax that works with everything. So it's not, yeah, yeah. It's not like you can just drop in S3 in place of a Google uh, bucket or vice versa. But, but it's kind of an abstraction. On the other hand, you know, if you want to, and then, and then things like Kubernetes give you an abstraction, mostly, you know, if, if you, you could more or less take your Kubernetes payload from one cloud to another um, with some tweaks, I mean, depending on exactly what you're doing. But, you know, I, I think a lot, in a lot of ways, it's, it's similar to going back to the car analogy I just made. You know, if you're driving an American car versus a European car or a Japanese car, they all work more or less the same. But you have to learn different things. You have to get metric tools or, or, or imperial tools. But, you know, for the most part, the, 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 the principles are the same. I mean, nobody would say, oh, I, I can fix a Japanese car easily, but I have no idea how to fix an American car. You know, that, that doesn't happen. You have specialties, but it's not, it's not so foreign that you can't uh, transfer your knowledge. Um, and then now we, you know, we have the, the additional dimension of internal combustion versus electric versus hybrid. And, and maybe even hydrogen. We've seen a few of those uh, driving around. Uh, I don't know if they're commercially available yet. Uh, so you know you get you get different drivetrains, and you know that that changes the, the picture a little bit. But still, for the most part, they all have wheels, and they all turn, and they have to brake when when you come to red light. And so th- those mechanics kind of are universal, even if you need different a different size wrench for each vehicle. <laughs> so yeah. I, I wonder if we're in a similar sort of situation that that you know the the big cloud providers, uh, unless Microsoft buys everybody eventually, uh, which I'm sure they'd love to do. Um, you know, we're, we're going to have this splintering, but maybe that's okay. And, and I, I, I agree that because I obviously run a practice with a whole bunch of DevOps guys. And that's my argument, right? If there's a specific tool that you're looking for that, that our engineers need to know, like if they know similar ones, then I'm quite happy with that because they can pick that mm-hmm. up because they're not that yep. different. If you know, if you know the principles, then moving from one to the other is not that, it's not that hard. And I think right. that's, that's certainly, I think the, it comes back to what I said earlier, right? The, the overarching steps continue to be similar, right? There's, a, you know, there's orchestration, there's automation, there's infrastructure, there's these components you need to pull together. You build some pe- templates. I mean, whether you, and infrastructure has now become like code, right? Where it's like, you know, like open source, you pull these different components of the, of the infrastructure together. So it's, it's becoming closer and closer. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that you guys are saying that because on the data science side, I feel like I'm seeing almost the opposite where there is a really big push to standardize. Uh, and so I kind of, you know, I sort of see both sides of the argument where, you know, okay, as long as you know the fundamentals, it's, it's fine and you can switch pretty easily between frameworks because I, I think that's quite often the case. But then 
on the other side, I am seeing much more of a big push to, um, to kind of standardize these different processes and workflows, like how you treat, you know, like a data frame, essentially, you know, like an Excel file or a CSV, um, or at least that's the data model that you can keep in your head, or uh, how to train, you know, machine learning models, how to test them, how to evaluate the hyperparameters. There's like a huge push towards standardizing all those kind of processes that have, you know, like, I don't even know how many machine learning libraries are out there these days, but like, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot. But now, you know, lately you're getting some that are not even new machine learning libraries, just like we have had enough. We want a standard way to talk to all these libraries so that we can test, um, you know, across all the different types of models with all the different hyperparameters and you know, some ridiculously large matrix once you get to the end of it and all that kind of thing. So, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting because I'm not really that sure like which direction it's going to go in. Is everybody going to keep pushing for standardization or is the, you know, is it going to be like, ah, you know, you need to just kind of adhere to this spec so that the computer can understand your code so that it's easy for like the IDE to sort of translate between the different languages. I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I don't know either, but I, I, I have hope <laughs> because, I mean, I find it amazing, right? If you look at how big IT is and how if you look at it objectively, how immature we are, when you think about, you know, how, how, how do you even measure whether you're progressing? Like getting an engineer from one organization to the other, these principles that Johnson and myself talked about are, are similar, but there's no guarantee that the process looks anywhere similar for them, right? Because if you measure completely different things, you mm-hmm. completely different processes. Like, it, it feels like there is a, there's a, a, a castle on the hill that everyone wants to get to, that we all agree on, which is this, Kind of hyper automation where you just really define the payload. But it's just completely wandering around this mountain range. It's like, you know, some people are going down this pathway, some of this pathway. And we never really get there, which is kind of fascinating. I'm curious to hear what you think. I I think the the part of the problem is that we think it's a technical problem, but it's not. It's really a people problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's never a technical problem. Like, it's always a people problem, almost always. And, and no, the tech I, I, almost makes it easier. And then we get, I mean, but this is no different to why we have this thing here that is like 10,000 times more powerful than what Apollo had to fly to the moon. Mm-hmm. And still opening Safari browser takes three seconds. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> because we're lazy. Like as soon as something gets easier, we become lazy and then it, become, it bloats. Right? And it's yeah. like you get new technologies. And it's, you, you now have microservices, and you know you have moved from your architecture, from your architecture, everyone is, we have fully microservices. Fantastic, right? And then because it's so easy to do, you just have incredible amount of redundancies in these services that you then have to manage. And now we're spending all our time dealing with that redundancy. Like you will always, you have to continue to exercise. You have to continue to stay healthy, and that is just a bit that we, we fail. But we are getting better. It's a slowly. <laughs> you know, I, we. we... We are getting better, and, and it is slow, but I think the, the more we get better, this is just what, basically, what you, I'm rephrasing, I think, what you just said or something you alluded to. Uh, the more we get better, the more we realize how much better we can get. So that castle on the hill is always getting bigger and fancier and more luxurious and farther away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And, it, and it, yeah, it gets fancier, right? It's like, oh, and we can, like, you know, can add extra bit here and that extra bit there. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, let's look at Star Trek, you know? In the 60s, Star Trek was really forward-looking, you know? Oh, my gosh, so such amazing technology they have in, you know, 
And then in the 80s, when they came out the next generation, you look back at the 60s, you're like, how ridiculously old does that look? You know, that, if that's our castle on the hill, it's, it's evolving too ahead of us. But, you know, yeah, there are some of the things from the 60s Star Trek that are still way cooler than what we have now. You know, fast and light travel, transporters. My goodness, they used tapes and they printed out papers. <laughs> but what the heck? <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, when I started this um, in our company, you know, I was, I was kind of one of the early guys, and, um, you know, before people believed that this would be something real. And I quite honestly put it in my, my targets that, you know, we'll just have DevOps adoption everywhere. And then I'm going to go off and do something different. And I've now resigned myself to the fact that I'm probably going to do DevOps for the rest of my career and then hand it over to my son to run it afterwards. But, you know, like, it's just not going to stop. Like, there's always the next technology and the next, the next barrier to break. Um, yeah. And we will always have to get better and keep up with those capabilities. I, I'll give you another example. And this is, I don't know whether that, that, that reflects well, but I, I used this recently with a client where, like, the, why, why does this matter? Um, and if you think about it, a few years ago, if you wanted to go live with, a, with an enterprise application, you had like, I don't know, a dozen components and you went live over a long weekend. And a dozen components, I can manage in my head, but I can say version one, version three, version six, uh, and then I kind of go live with it. Now, if I have hundreds of components and I go live every week, then you can't keep it in your head anymore. That means we needed to create capabilities to manage that complexity, right? And then we get faster again and we have more components and we use more open source elements that I need to manage. And we need more you know, infrastructure components that I, I can ethereal and you know, just come up for, for a millisecond. But now I have to manage that. Right? So I have new capabilities, and then I have to create capabilities to manage that complexity. And then I get new capabilities. And you know, you kind of, it, it's just flywheel. Box manage the box, manage the box. And it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> But it's 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 because we are we are dealing with. I mean, we we have a world around us that is more powerful, more more. It, it can be more powerful. It can also be really frustrating, and we need to we need to help manage it. I mean, our job, I think, it is in the industry is to to keep up with it, because otherwise we we go out of control. There's this this beautiful saying that to to make a mistake is human, but if you want to create a catastrophe, you need automation, right? And I think that is absolutely true. And I've seen it multiple times. For you to take down a production environment with 300 servers and to do that manually is pretty hard. Right? With a couple of automation scripts, you can do that in seconds. Right? So I think that should be like somebody's villain origin story. You know, like, like comes up from tech and they brought down um, thousands of servers accidentally. I'm just, I'm just waiting for the day. I'm sure it's already happened. It, there's, there's three really nice interesting Nice examples, right? There's this, there's this guy who built like a, a cloud-based uh, company that kind of creates development environments, right? And they woke up one morning and basically their, their whole library and everything was gone in the cloud because they had, create, they had run a script with a variable in it and the variable nulled out. And so it basically went to the root and deleted it all. His company disappeared overnight because there was no backup, nothing like that. Right? And he was, it was not small. It wasn't huge, but it was like, you know, like a, a couple of million dollar revenue company, right? Then you see the example of the guy who got into um, a fight with, I want to say it was, was GitHub or whatever it was, where he took his, his little library out with, a, you know, removing the left space, right? And basically brought, you know, the whole internet to breaking. That to the oh, point yeah, that, was that an NPM package or something? Correct, yeah. 
right? And then he had to, he basically then agreed to put it back in, right? But again, like there's a complexity that we can't, and, and it's not like that you or me can't write this piece of code. It's just, we didn't know that it was in so many other things, these transient dependencies that no human can manage, right? And then there's, there was the example of the Amazon outage where they basically had a whole bunch of things where they're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to clean out a bunch of um, old, old data sets. And he basically ran it on the wrong, on the wrong qualifier. And because the pop-up that came up for the engineer was, are you sure? Well, has anyone ever pressed no? Of course you're sure. I mean, you wrote what I think. But again, because it's out of context, right? If it was that, are you sure you want to delete five quadrillion data sets? He would have said no, but it just said, are you sure? Right? And so, you, you know what I mean? Like th- these are the things that are outside of our, our control sphere. And we just need to have the systems that help us. I find that fascinating. Like this is like I'm 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 a very I'm an optimist and yet I'm cynical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good combination, I think. <laughs> no, I think it's uh it's you know it's all a distance metric. You know, it's like how far you have to go to get to the castle is also how far you have to fall into the underworld. I think it's just you know it's a vector going in either direction. You just gotta you gotta hope that it's going in the right direction. And I think part of part of all the kind of coaches and transformation guys and whatnot, I think part of the, the job is to make it a somewhat enjoyable journey. Like it can't be this kind of death march. It has to be something where people, you know, enjoy the landscape and get some pleasure from the, making the next mark and the next step forward and so forth. Right? I think in general, tech attracts people uh, who have what I call it like to learn new things disease because <laughs> the people who don't have that disease tend to find something else that makes them, you know, less frustrated with the world than <laughs> the library. We've had another, you know, version upgrade and all these syntaxes don't change, right? So, so I, uh, and this, this, is, this tells you why, why I'm in this industry. So when I, when I was a teenager, I actually want to become a text advisor. It's a very weird kind of dream job to have. Um, but I had this idea that, you know, I make money and then I also learn how to optimize, how to get the minimum amount back to the state. But anyway, um, I, I did a, an intern job in an IT department. And then one day I came home to my dad and said, like, I'm going to go into IT. And he's like, hmm, what a strange miracle. Like, why do why you want to do that? I'm like, I, I, I've been now in, in this department for a week. And I realized what they do. They build a product. They roll it out. And then later on, they get paid to fix it. And then they, then they build the next version. They get paid to do the next version. And there's no end to it. It's like, you will never be out of a job. I'm like, I find that genius. <laughs> Very insightful for 16 year old. Yeah, that's like trying to explain paperwork to kids. You know, I'm giving, I'm doing this paperwork so I can give it to somebody else and then they give you back more paperwork and you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, you're right. I haven't thought of it like that. It is. It's the job that never ends because you, you're constantly creating yourself new jobs. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's probably the same for most of technologies these days, right? Like, it's not like the TVs and washing machines and so forth last for, for a generation. Um, but certainly in IT, it's, it's extreme. No, I'm convinced every like appliance now has a three year like ticking time bomb inside of it where it just explodes. Like my blender every three years on the dot. Mm-hmm. My great uncle had the same blender for like thirty years, I think. Like thirty years. Yeah. All right, that's that's a complaint for another time, but I'm very annoyed that my blender is currently not working. <laughs> so, 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 I, I've heard that I haven't bought it yet, but I have the same the same experience. And I've been told, um, my wife is Sri Lankan, that in Sri Lanka, they still sell some of the kind of old school stuff. 
And that lasts like, you know, 10, 15 years. So it's on the list for the next trip to just bring back a blender. <laughs> That's a good idea. Save yourself. But, but, it's, but, but it's amazing. I mean, think about cars, right? Like I remember my, my older brother fixing a car, like an old car and just, you know, repairing it. And uh, mm-hmm. now like I drive a Tesla, like, I mean, what am I going to do with that thing? Like if there's something broken, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's nothing yeah. to fix here. And, and that's actually, again, a good analogy, right? You can stay with your car analogy, Jonathan, because it's the same thing. Like in the old days, you could probably fix a whole bunch of stuff yourself. Right? And you had a, a much broader range of what you can do. Like, you know, think about mm. when, when I had my first PC, you know, the, the uh, config system, auto exit button, whatnot, that you kind of tweaked to make the, the, the memory allocation better. Like you wouldn't try to do any of that stuff now because it's just outside of your, mm. of, all of your area of access. Yeah, I used to. Yeah, of course, I played with config sys, and and then I switched to Linux, and I compiled my own kernel, and I would go through and disable all the modules I didn't want, and think, you know, read read up on all the, you know, I can set this this number to one twenty eight or two fifty six. What does that mean? You know, I look all that. Up. I, I haven't compiled a kernel. I, th- I think last time was about three years ago when I was trying to use an HDMI capture card that required a specific kernel patch, um, and then I stopped using that. So yeah, I, I don't I don't do that stuff anymore. I don't need to. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and there's probably way too much now in there for you to actually understand it all, right? Like, it's not oh, like yeah. the, the, the 15 things that you could worry about. It's like it's 5,000, and it means like where do we even start? So you need right, to use the right. instruction. You have no choice. Yep. Yep. But it's, it's yeah, I mean, this is fascinating. This is a really great it conversation. Is. This is very more, but much more um, deeper than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's always fun to have these chats. <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the really fun examples of that is looking at like package managers, just even in the last like five or six years and how much more complex they have all become and how many of them have, you know, like bots to manage the bots to manage the bots. Like you can really go and dig into these things because a lot of them are online. So for example, I used to do a lot of work with the Conda package manager. Uh, I don't know how many layers of abstraction that thing has anymore, but it's a lot. It's a lot. And then it was too slow. So then somebody wrote it in like, you know, C or C plus plus, and then somebody can go to rewrite, and like it's just it's it's getting out of control. Wild. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, I, I read the um, one of the um, security reports, and what it said, like it's all about transient dependencies now because it's just it, it it very quickly that tree becomes very quickly so large that you can't control it anymore, and so you have to kind of figure out like where can we even interface with this stuff anymore? It's just like kind of scary to some degree. Mm-hmm. And then we get to I, I, we had. Um, we're doing DevOps weeks at the moment here in, in our company, in, uh, like a week-long um, conference, and we have lots of people representing. There was quite a few machine learning conversations, and just the the difficulty of controlling that, right? Because if you if you train something, you're now training not on like individual data sets, but you're training just like gigabytes of data that you basically have to version control because that is what created that model, and you know, and you have multiple of these experiments running in parallel, and it just it's outside of anything that you can control anymore. You just have to assume that, you know, the, the abstraction is good enough. Yeah, reproducible research has been struggling with the same problem for, uh, I suppose, as long as there has been research. Remember, Nature came out with a paper. Oh, I don't know. It was a while ago, but it was how it was about how like nothing was reproducible when it was, you know, it was quite scandal when it happened. But yeah, yeah, specifically because of what you're talking about, you also have to version control data, and data is very large. You get into, you know. And so then all of these new types of problems, so you have to version the data, version the software, version any compilation changes, uh, you know, 
specifically with a lot of the machine learning libraries. It's, it's a whole lot more things than anybody could ever possibly manage in their head. Yeah, and it is, you know, let me come back to the ghost in the machine, right? Like it's, you're doing the same thing and it just turns out differently because there's one variable somewhere in this that you didn't control. Or you're getting, you're getting statistics now, right? Because, I mean, with machine learning, you end up, I mean, we're doing demos, right? To clients around, you know, Gen I created code and co-pilot and so forth. And they can't predict the bloody outcome. Like, I just can't. Right? And then it's, a, it's you just have to be comfortable with the variability in this. Well, I, I mean, yes and no. So for a lot of, specifically with the machine learning stuff, you're supposed to have some external way to validate that that does not rely on the computer, right? Like in biotech, a lot of times you're testing for a compound that has some medicinal activity, and then you get a computer to generate something that looks similar, and then you go generate that thing that was generated, and then you go test it in the lab. So there's still, there's some feedback loop in there somewhere that should be real. Uh, when you exist too much in software, though, I think maybe it does get a little bit, I don't know, it's like too meta or something. There's too many layers of abstraction. Like you said, it was a ghost in the machine. Who even knows anymore? <laughs> I, I remember ghost in the machine as long as I go back. I went, my first engineering project, and for whatever reason, the answer to the problem was to allocate A to A, and then the problem was then solved itself somehow. Never knew why, but <laughs> those things used to happen, and I'm sure it still happens. Is there anything else we should touch on before we start to wrap up? I think I've covered my ground, to be honest. Like, this is kind of the stuff that I'm fascinated by. Um, mm-hmm. um, I mean, the, the only thing is probably the, the, um, the, the rallying cry that we really need to focus on solving those problems and not get too excited about those passwords. Um, yeah. We didn't talk too much about this, but I find this incredibly frustrating. That, uh, you know, uh, now everything needs to be SRE, everything needs to be platform engineering, everything needs to be this and that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find this obsession a bit, you know, I think Agile has it worse because they have these kind of really strong fractions where, you know, the safe framework versus the scrum framework versus whatever. And mm-hmm. to the point that you could, they can't talk to each other. If, you're, if I'm the principal of one, then you can't be the principal of the other. Um, but I'm really, really, I'm, I'm, I'm at, I, in our community, we need to make sure that that doesn't happen because one of the good things for us is that we never had a definition and that we never kind of had these hard barriers. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to continue to just try to improving the situation with whatever we have available to us. And every new idea, every new tool is just another tool in the toolkit and you can choose to use it or not. And that's up to you. Shall we go to picks then? Do you have one, Jillian? You want to start us off? I do. So I have been uh, messing around with the AI tools lately, specifically GitHub Copilot and Tab 9, which are both plugins or extensions you install into your IDE. I mostly use uh, PyCharm and Line, which is like the, the C++ version of PyCharm. And I'm pretty happy with the, um, you know, with like the, the different tools now. They're pretty cool. They do a pretty good job. Sometimes they give me total nonsense. Like today, I was like, oh, that's neat. I didn't realize that was a function that existed. It turns out it was not a function that actually existed. <laughs> so then, you know, that threw me an error. So uh, GitHub Copilot, I'm not sure what happened there. I'm also, I'm pretty excited for the voice like the voice activation that's supposed to be coming along with GitHub Pilot. I will totally pay for that if somebody is here who, you know, has the inside scoop on GitHub and can get me added from the waiting list to the actual product. I would very much appreciate it. Um, so those were really neat. And it's actually gotten me kind of to learn 
you know, some new frameworks and I've been a bit, I don't know, just, uh, I don't know if I'm getting too old for this or what, but where I'm like, oh, I don't want to learn any of these new frameworks these crazy kids are using these days. But now since it's so much easier with the, you know, with the AI autocomplete tools and things like that, I'm getting into the uh, PyArrow C++ library, which is very, has really good performance. So that's been fun. And then um, the other one that I have is AWS Omic, which is like their kind of platform for doing genomics research recently released these workflows called Ready to Run, which are these kind of like uh, pre, pre-configured analysis workflows for different types of genomics, um, genomics and a lot of chemical informatics engineering. And I think it relates really well to what we've been talking about on the show with this idea of like continuous improvement and uh, the ghost of the machine and all this kind of thing, because to get a workflow that you know, you're treating like software, you you have to have so many different moving pieces. You have to have data itself that is under version control so that you know like what to expect in the data. Some of these um, data platforms aren't deterministic. So then how do you, you know, test to see if some result is within an acceptable range or not? Um, how do you get the results? Where do you store the data? All these different kind of ideas that people have been struggling with, you know, for as long as there's been research. I guess there's, uh, you know, now kind of some really interesting answers, I think, for the first time, at least that I've been working in research, these different pieces have come together. Because it used to be, okay, we can have these workflows, but we just don't have the storage to store enough, you know, variations of the data that we can really test this thing on demand. Now they are able to be tested on demand. And then uh, specifically for the more self-serving, you know, side of myself, I do a lot of this kind of analysis optimization, and I work with a lot of startups that, they want to create an analysis workflow and then kind of like license it, um, you know, or like rent it out to collaborators and things like that. So having yet another platform that allows for that is pretty exciting for me personally. So that's it. Those are my picks. What about you guys? I have one pick this week. It's an audio book I'm reading. I'm sure the paper book is just as good if you prefer that. It's called Stealing the Corner Office, the Winning Career Strategies They'll Never Teach You in Business School. Mm. And the author talks about, uh, he, he gives several anecdotes from his own life and lives of people he knows, but it basically talks about uh, the, the, pro- the problem, the, the reality that we all have experienced incompetent managers <laughs> and, and the paradox of how do incompetent people become managers and why is their career always advancing when those of us who are trying hard and, and you know, doing the right things are, are being overlooked for promotions and so on. So he, take, he takes the approach of what can we learn from these people? What are they doing right that we can copy without also becoming incompetent to uh, advance our career? So that's, that's the premise of the book. I'm about halfway through it. And uh, so far, it's, it's really good. So that's my recommendation for the week. Do you know the answer yet? Is it people skills? So you have to read the whole book. It, it, there, he, there's, I think he says seven different uh, techniques or, or traits that he recommends uh, borrowing from these people. So... Oh, it's not just a single answer. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Never is. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll choose two picks. Uh, one is a, a book, New Dark Age, by, from James Bridle, um, which is very much related to what we've been talking about, to be honest. Um, it makes the argument that you're getting into a new dark age. And the definition of a dark age, in, in his view, is maybe using technologies that we don't understand um, and that we can't, you know, we can't get under the covers to figure out how the mechanism works. 
I'm obviously in original dark ages. There was a lot of those kind of things that, you know, started working for us being in chemistry and physics, whatever. And then it took us quite a while to get to understand why. And now we're getting into this world, this AI and everything else where the individual can't control it anymore and doesn't understand how it works. And that means, you know, like we are, we, we are at the mercy of, of technology. So he's, he, it's very interesting the way that he describes this. Um, he has this fantastic example of, of YouTube where you have AIs creating content and AI consuming content. And in, in, in between, you know, companies spend their marketing money, uh, people creating videos only being consumed by, by AI and um, how to be, how to be controlled. So it's a, it's a very, very fascinating uh, topic. He has also, I think, a couple of, of TED Talks, if you want to just get the 12-minute the version. Um, but I find it incredibly fascinating. And then um, my second pick is a bit uh, self-serving, um, which is, is my own book. So if you like kind of what I've been talking about, um, I have a book called DevOps for the Modern Enterprise um, that goes a little bit into this kind of thought process of how do you deal with it in a, in a large organization and I give away pretty much all my consulting practices in the book and basically say, here's what you can do at home and something you can try at home. Awesome. Great. Uh, and how can people, if, if people are interested in reaching out to you, uh, are you on social media? How can they con- contact you? Yeah. Um, so obviously LinkedIn, Merkel Herring will work. Um, I have a blog called Not a Factory Anymore, um, which takes this kind of principle that we shouldn't call software factories and stuff like that. It's, it's a more artisan practice. Um, yeah. And then on Twitter, Merkel Herring as well. Great. Thanks, Marco, for coming on. It's been a pleasure. It's uh, fun, fun topics we've been discussing. So uh, thanks for coming on and hope to see you on here again in the future, perhaps. Yeah, it was absolutely fascinating. So yeah, I would be very happy to come back and do another round of fun. <laughs> thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk at you again in about a week. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>